Hey there, it's Mike Tramp, and you're listening to White Lion Fever, where rock and roll is still alive like it always has been and it always will be. Welcome uh, to White Line Fever. I think we're up to episode 92, and I'm here with Vivian Campbell from Last in Line. Vivian, um, now, the last, the listeners who heard the last part of our interview, you said that uh, you know, aggressive guitar driven music is a, a muscle you haven't exercised much lately, and you're enjoying playing these shows. I mean, a lot of fans say the same thing about, about Def Leppard. They'd like to hear more songs like that. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that and, and the possible future direction? And, you know, what, what's, what are the discussions that take place each time you do a record about that, you know? Well, well Def Leppard is a band that has evolved over the years, over the decades. And, and really, you know, Def Leppard covers a lot of different genres of music. And particularly on the, on the last album we put out last year, the self-titled record, you know, there's a lot of different musical styles. In fact, there's some styles on that record that we've never done before. The, the album Closer um, is a psychedelic track. We've never done anything remotely like that before. But but we, you know, through the years we've grown and developed. Like I think when, I, uh, when, when Def Leppard started, you know, the, the first record on Through the Night was, you know, it was a very, very interesting debut, but it was the second record that really started to bring notoriety to the band that was high and dry, and it was very in the mould of ACDC, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. who the band had toured with at the time, and I think that a lot of hardcore, long-time Def Leppard fans long for that sort of thing again, mm-hmm. but i got to tell you, that's it's never going to happen. We're, ne- <laughs> we're never going to make an album that's solely like that. There, there's mm-hmm. too much diversity within Def Leppard now. There's too many miles under the wheels. Too many different genres have been sampled. And, and the band couldn't really go back to making an album just like that. Mm. Um, we can do tracks like that again, mm-hmm. by all means, but but there'll never be probably an album that's so rock-focused as that. You know, I think by the time Leopard was doing Pyromania, that's really where the, the true diversity started, and then Hysteria was the zenith of that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so when we play live, there is much more of a rock element to the band, for yeah, sure, yeah. you know. Um, but, but the real strength... It, in Leopard is our not, not just the, the diversity of songwriting but, but in the live performance it's the vocal we all sing mm. pretty strongly and we you know we're, we're very proud of the fact that we can replicate for the most part what it is we do on record which is very production heavy a lot of like many many tracks of vocals that we can actually do a very decent live representation of that because we all can sing so mm. that's the muscle that I exercise more than any other in mm. Def Leppard you know yeah. the, the, there's two guitar players in Leopard, so I don't have to do all the heavy lifting yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and obviously we play uh, basically uh, you know anything that that that, that Steve Clark played a guitar riff or solo in, I, I play that part. And then Phil obviously played the majority of the solos in, in the Paramania and the mm-hmm. Hysteria era. So, and those songs make up the bulk of the Def Leppard's show, even decades after they came out. You know, they're the really, really big hits. So we, um, you know, we, we, but we, we focus, you don't find us playing a lot of guitar before Def Leppard show, but you'll hear us doing vocal warm-ups yeah, for yeah, hours, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, whereas, yeah. whereas here with Last in Line... Most I, people assume it's recorded, don't they? Don't they, they do, <laughs> actually, yeah, and, and they do, and, and we take that as a backhanded compliment, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, yeah, a lot of people actually think that, and that, that's fine. But, um, you know, here with Last in Line, 
on this project I don't even want to sing I don't even have a mic in front of me yeah, I yeah, refuse yeah. to sing in this band because I get enough of that in my day job mm-hmm. you know so this band for me Last in Line is all about putting my head down and playing guitar mm-hmm. getting back I even you know the, the guitar that I use with Last in Line is a guitar I bought when I was 15 uh, <laughs> and I used it I, we wrote and recorded the Holy Diver and toured the Holy Diver record with that guitar mm-hmm. and you know I, I bought that Les Paul and so that it kind of it's come full circle for me that I even went back and used that guitar and I have other Les Pauls that are much much better instruments but to me that one represents the teenager in me that's yeah, the guitar yeah, I yeah. learned how to play on and that's what like I said you know I played Rainbow in the Dark solo on that guitar and, mm-hmm. and if the house was on fire that would be the one I would grab <laughs> it's the only guitar I know the serial number of you know because I had to work so hard as a 15 year old kid yeah. to pay for it so yeah, yeah. Uh, it really means a lot to me and it seems right to play it in this band so so this band Blast in Line it exercises the guitar muscle Def Leppard very mm-hmm. much exercises the the songwriting muscle and then the vocal muscles you know? yeah 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 um, I guess this is the, the hard hitting newsy third of the uh, interview because I also want to ask about the whole thing with Dio Disciples is like it's been built up as a bit of a feud almost um, what, what's, what's the story there that's not a, it can't be a feud I mean do you, do you, you know I'm very flattered that, that there were a bunch of people who would go out and who would want to represent the, the early Dio music um, you know it's a nice tribute Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very different project from this, you know. Mm-hmm. Some people, when we started doing this a few years ago with Jimmy and Vinny and I, you know, some people refer to it as a tribute, which was actually completely incorrect. It can't be a tribute because it's seventy-five percent of the original Dio band. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it's a very different thing, and it's taken on an entirely different level of importance now that that we've released our own album mm-hmm. um so it, there's there's absolutely no comparison between last in line and, and the dio disciples dio disciples is a, a revolving door of of people who were never actually in the original dio band so mm-hmm. it's, it's, it is a tribute act you know yeah yeah because i think I, just before i came here i read it craig goldie wanted an apology or something i mean has everything been misreported or i, I, I have nothing i've no idea what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> news to me yeah. you know, apology for for what okay, <laughs> okay let's have another song um, gosh, are we, are we off our record? Are we off the last in line record? Or? You can play three if you like. Uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, Star Maker is uh, a, a song that seems to go over very, very, very well everywhere mm-hmm. we, we've played it. And, and uh, just it's such a dynamic track. And yeah, it, it kicks some serious booty. So I'd go with Star Maker. <laughs>
this is Vivian Campbell from Def Leppard and Last in Line, and you're listening to White Line Fever. Welcome back to the program, and uh, it's the second part of our interview with Damon Johnson from uh, Black Star Riders. I want to ask you a little bit about yourself in this little segment. Um, you've just, uh, you know, you just finished doing the solo EP uh, Echo. I just wondered what that's a completely different side of the industry, I guess, and and I suppose you kind of see how the other half live, the people who aren't in bands with record deals and I know when Ricky does solo stuff he keeps it off streaming services I just wondered what that experience was like and what insight it gave you into the state of the industry now another great question um you know it was just so fulfilling for me I've I've made a couple of solo acoustic albums uh, over the years but never done anything solo electric and I just love the I just love being the boss for a change you know like Picking the, picking the musicians, picking the songs, picking the studio, making the decisions about everything from the artwork to the running order to what songs we're going to record. Uh, it was just a real refreshing thing. And what I did not expect is for that collection of five songs to get such a reaction from really all over the world. And, you know, it, it, was, uh, it was a perfect time for me to do something like that. Uh, I'm actually sitting on a batch of another 15 songs and I'm getting ready to go in and record as well. Uh, that's probably going to get pushed back a little because Black Star Writers is about to be very, very, very busy. But um, just the whole concept of the changes in the music business, kind of being a do-it-yourself independent musician, I really enjoy that. I love that. I mean, without a doubt, man, I'd love to give my music more exposure. It would be great if you know, some big manager like Irving Azoff were to call and say, hey, we're going to take you out and you can open for U2 and we're going to put your song in a, you know, a BMW automobile commercial. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be great too. But in the interim, you know, those are things I can't control. I can Mm. just control the quality of the music and, and, you know, my discipline to to be a songwriter and, and to record new stuff. So, it's very gratifying for me, and uh, you know I appreciate you asking about that. I'm, I'm certainly proud of Echo, and I'm excited about you know the next the next chapter of my solo stuff holds. Here is another Damon-oriented question. Tell us about the Lost Damn Yankees album. Where is it? What does it sound like? What, what's happening there? I love it. I love it. You know what's great, mate? Is you're the second Australian that has asked me about that today. Uh, that's so fantastic. Um, you know, man, that's a long time ago. 2000 is when we wrote those songs and made that album. It was a great experience for me. And, you know, I was just, again, kind of honored to ask to be a part of it. I don't know what's going to happen with that stuff, to tell you the truth. Uh, much like Thin Lizzy is Scott Gorham's band, uh, the Damn Yankees is Ted Nugent and Jack Blade's band. And, uh, you know, I'm... I've been friends with those guys a long time. I still see them from time to time. And, uh, you know, I had a great experience uh, working with them. I don't know if it's ever going to see the light of day. There's uh, there's definitely some good-sounding stuff on there. And uh, I know that my fans would certainly get a kick out of it, you know, to hear, to hear me singing lead vocals on a song, Jack Blade singing harmony, and then have Ted Nugent come in with some ripping guitar solo. It's, uh, it's pretty awesome. So I've... Fingers crossed, mate. I hope, I hope it sees the light of day sometime. Is there any indication one way or another whether it will? I mean, um, have you had any discussions about about it with them? No, honestly, I have not. I have not had any discussions about it. I know that John Kolodner, 
our great friend and A&R man that was in charge of that. Um, I spoke to John, God, it's been three or four years ago, and he was talking about how proud he was of, you know, the work that I did on that. So, uh, you know, I'm sure he's going to have some role to play in that as well. But I don't know, mate. I'm just kind of looking ahead. It's, uh, it's definitely uh, almost this mysterious chapter in my musical life that uh, it's fun to get asked about from time to time. And, um, you know, I love all those guys, man. You never know. I, I'd love for it to come out because I'm, I'm certainly proud of it. I don't want to lead you um, into what song we're going to play next, but I'm really interested in the song Thinking About You Could Get Me Killed, apparently inspired by a conversation, was it Ricky had with a Vietnam vet? Can you tell us a little bit about about that song? And we might play it, if that's okay with you. <laughs> yeah, but, oh, I would love, oh, mate, it's definitely one of my favourites. I, I wish that you would play it. Yeah, you know, Ricky's always surprising me with, the things that he is able to turn into a complete song lyric. And that's another perfect example. He just walks in and says, hey, Damon, I got this idea for a song. I'm calling it Thinking About You Could Get Me Killed. And I was like, you got to be kidding. That's the greatest song title I've ever heard in my life. And, um, you know, he's such a talented, disciplined writer. The guy always has his radar up listening, searching, paying attention, you know, for any information that could lead to a title or a story or a verse or a lyric or a melody. So, um, you know, that was a pretty killer riff that we had. We uh, we started that song almost a year ago, and it's hard to believe that that song started on an acoustic guitar because it's, you know, it's clearly one of the heaviest songs on the album. It features some great, great bass guitar from Robbie Crane. Um and I'm pretty proud of that guitar solo, man. That's kind of some uh, that's kind of some vintage Alice Cooper guitar solo stuff right there. Very proud of it. Okay, let's have a listen to it. Blind. Well, I heard the thunder, saw the lightning strike the sky. Fire in the jungle, the red river's running high. In the tail, I'm the devil, pick a card, get a card. Texas Hold'em in the Delta, snake eyes in the junkyard. There's no justice, there's no peace. Save all your pity for the ones who need
everybody. This is Damon Johnson from Black Star Riders, and you're listening to White Line Fever. Yeah. Welcome back to episode 92 of White Line Fever, um, and this is the rugby league section of the podcast. And uh, before I introduce our guest, um, some housekeeping. Uh, WLF Podcast on Twitter, um, White Line Fever on uh, Facebook, and the Ning um, uh, uh, site does not exist anymore, so don't go there. And also, we've um, moved the radio station off Radionomy, so there's a little bit of a hiatus for White Line Fever Radio where we find a much better platform. And our guest is the great Jimmy Smith. Jimmy, how are you? Stevie, very well, mate. Great. What's happened to Ning? What have you done to Ning? <laughs> no, whitelinefever.ning.com. It's like a, right. it was like, it's kind of like a uh, ning.com was, it's going the way of MySpace, Ning. Oh, yeah, 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 they put their prices up, which was an indication to me they were going broke, <laughs> and then they begged me to come back, which is definitely an indication <laughs> they're going broke. So it was a prescient decision, which is probably, uh, talking of prescience, um, the death of... Well, I was going to say, well, tell us where we are, Jimmy. I didn't even know you had an office. Tell, tell, <laughs> tell, tell, tell the listeners where we are. Well, it's like the bunker, you know. I try <laughs> to keep it quiet. But uh, we're on the second level of the Frank Hurley building in Fox Studios Australia. So this is the old grandstand mm-hmm. that used to be here for the showground. So yeah, the yeah. showground we can just see over here in front of us. And the showground played host to the Royal Agricultural Society show for mm. over a century. Um, I actually recognise that pavilion from the big day out. There you go. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And, and I think I saw Radio Birdman playing there. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so right now, that's a, a movie studio. Oh, yeah. um, they do a lot of the filming. Um, I know that um, uh, Wolverine has been filmed here. That like mm. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of films. So um, you could look out. You you could look out your um, window here and see R two D two in dark sunglasses. No, but I will tell you what, we did have. <laughs> we had access to all the cars that were being shown in uh, Mad Max Fury Road oh, right. um, before it was released, and everyone was running around saying, please don't take any photos of them. We're like, what? Of course we're going to take photos of them. So uh, we did that. But here on the showground, um, World Series Cricket, of course, was played here as yeah. well back in the late 70s. Uh, couldn't get access to the SCG, so they had it here. But now, now it's a working um, film studio and associated businesses. So I've got a little little office here that uh, I tell no one about, Steve. And and I guess, um, you know, you've got a few kids and that, so being able to get away from that and get work done is, is kind of kind of important, isn't it? You know, because otherwise you'd never get anything done. Am I that transparent? That's a... <laughs> um, having moved from uh, reasonably close from Bondi uh, down to uh, Caringbar, which mm. is about a... Well, depending on when you leave, like it's an hour and a half if you leave in peak hour, but mm. it's about 30 minutes when you get up early and leave like I do. But... Um, yeah, it's good just to get away. Um, it's uh, it, it's an office space that lends itself to a um, little bit of creativity too. There's a lot of associated businesses just within this office. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it gives me access to boardrooms and so forth, which is where we're sitting now, which is great for taking meetings and so forth. So, bit of um, an echo. Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. So, no, it sounds, it sounds impressive. <laughs> now, Jimmy, I remember you when you were still playing at Salford doing a weekly radio report uh, for, was it for Ray Hadley? You were talking about what was happening in Super League. I mean, is that where it all started, your media career? That is exactly right. Well done. Well spotted. Um, so I had an interest in, I don't know, I just had an interest in public speaking. I was the public speaking champion at high school and was in the debating team, which is a bit strange for a guy who played footy, but um, just like talking. So um, 
I knew I was going to England. Um, I knew that the guy who'd been doing it previously, I got a tip off that, that mm. he wasn't doing it anymore. So I rang Ray Hadley and said, can I have a go? And he said, yeah, you're on. Um, for the first three weeks, we were staying at a, a little tiny little place in Salford there until, um, well, to be honest, the club was actually not looking for a place for us until I said, well, why don't we look for a place? And if we find it for the same price as this, we can move into that. They said, okay, but that place didn't have a telephone. <laughs> and given the time difference, at a quarter to six, Every Saturday morning, I would go down to the, the telephone booth, like like it was Doctor Who. I would yeah. walk into the telephone booth, and it'd be. What if someone else was in there? <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> would you believe it? Quarter to six on a Saturday morning, no one else was in there. So I'd put my shekels in and call up radio station Two UE and deliver the uh, five minute report about what was happening in the north of England um, for the first three weeks in the phone box, and then eventually we moved into place and we got the phone connected. So I was able to do it from there. But uh, yes. As I said, well spotted. That's where it all started. And how hard was it to sort of uh, come back and try to sort of parry that into a career? I ended up doing um, community radio for two years down at Bondi FM. And literally once a week with a couple of mates of mine, we just did a sports show Mm -hmm. and and made a heap of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it was terrible. Mm -hmm. And, And it was on Bondi FM that played all this really classical, like, you know, really cool music. And then between 6 and 8 p.m. on a Monday night, there were these three guys on there talking ridiculously about sport. We we ended up getting special guests that come into the studio. We had Brad Fittler, Brian Fletcher, Craig Coleman, uh, Michael Slater. You, like We got these big names to come in and um, have a chat with us. So um, that's where the love of it mm-hmm. came from, and that's where that's where I started to think, oh, you know what, I, th- I think I can make a career out of there. I hope I can make a career out of it. Um, and 2004... Uh, 2SM came knocking so mm. you know they, they were starting up a radio program there and um, there was an opportunity there and got a start and um, so from that point I've actually been paid to be mm. in the media which has been fantastic and having been on both sides of the fence what do you think what do you think the biggest misconception or mistake players make or f- think in dealing with the media and in reverse what, yeah. do, you, what, do, you, what do you think the number one things um, that peop- you would tell each about the other yeah, I, it, it's the same thing. So I would tell, I would tell the player that the journo who is writing that story, you have to understand where they're coming from. They are under pressure from their editor or or their producer to get a story, to find an angle, um, and and to understand that you know that's the same sort of pressure that you're under. They've got a, usually got yeah. a, a family to feed and they a mortgage to pay, and that, mm. that's what they're doing. They're keeping their job, and sometimes they write things that you don't agree with, but you have to respect their right to write it mm-hmm. um, or, or say it. Mm. Um, and generally speaking, although you might think this is a little bit different, there is no ill will mm-hmm. intended. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, generally speaking, it's it's them literally just doing their job. The journo is doing their job. Flip it around from the journo to the player. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and the other thing I tell the player is this. Every time you speak on a television network, on a radio station, to a journal in print, it's an opportunity mm. to talk, uh, to impress someone. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't matter who that someone is. You know, on a radio station, companies pay good money for a 30-second spot to tell people what they do. Mm-hmm. Right? It's called advertising, called mm-hmm. commercial radio. Players are afforded five minutes, six minutes, seven mm. minutes to tell people about what they're doing in mm. their life or what they're doing with their team or what they're doing with their, their football. It's such an opportunity. Mm. And it frustrates me that teams and players and, and coaches especially 
take that opportunity away from players mm-hmm. because you never know who's listening to that. Mm-hmm. Like who who is it? I, I remember I did a, did an interview with Peter Bosley on Two Week, and you know it, we just talked about different stuff. I was playing for the Rabbitohs at the time. It was late nineties, so I was a bit older. I was a bit more comfortable with the media. Peter Bosley was a lovely guy. We had a great chat. And I remember he rang me back and said, thanks very much for that interview. That's really good. You should think about doing the media. And mm. that sort of thing is mm. like, oh, wow, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's um, significant. You know? mm-hmm. It gives you, gives you a motivation and encouragement to, to do something similar to that. It's not always going to be media, but mm-hmm. someone will hear something and say, wow, that guy's a, an honest guy. Mm-hmm. So if he walked in to get a job somewhere, I'd give him a job because mm-hmm. of what he said. So mm-hmm. from that point of view. And, and from a journo point of view, looking back at the player... Um, understand that they're not as invincible as they appear, mm-hmm. a, as they're perceived. Um, and I think it's probably related to how, you know, with the number of suicides that are around professional sport, especially mm-hmm. in Australia the last few weeks, I don't know whether you've caught up with the Dan Bickerman thing, and mm-hmm. um, which is just tragic, and Chad Robinson and all that sort of thing. There's an air of invincibility about these people, and some of them are like that, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the very small percentage. But mostly it's... You know, there's like the scared little guys inside of all of us that mm. are um, literally just trying to hang on to our job, just trying to make ourselves the best we can be mm. from a player point of view um, and and make sure that, you know, again, very much like the journo, you can feed your family and you can pay your mortgage. Mm-hmm. And, and as glamorous as all the NRL seems, that's exactly what people are doing right mm-hmm. now. Um, we will get you to pick a song in a minute, but we should talk about Rugby League Week because... Um, whenever you're listening to this, I assume Rugby League Week will still be dead, sadly. Um, <laughs> yeah. A decision by Bauer in, uh, what, early March to uh, to um, wind up a magazine that's been around since 1970. Mm. Um, I suppose we've all got some memories of, mm. of growing up reading Rugby League Week, haven't we? Ah, so many. And they're all good, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, um, but the pure economics of it, you understand. Like, mm-hmm. the circulation just dropped because people are accessing... Their rugby league news elsewhere, Steve Mascord. So, mm-hmm. you know, people like you are, are to blame for that. But podcasts like this, <laughs> exactly. But and that's fine, and that's fine. Is but but you understand the economics of why it, mm. it can't go on. Um, so that's very disappointing. Mm. But for me, it was the this the Bible that I grew mm. up with. You know, I was just a, a kid that just loved the game, and I. I used to read it religiously at... I went to boarding school at St Gregory's College, so mm. a mad rugby league school. And it would come out on the Wednesday and then we'd have to study every night. Every night we'd have to study for three hours. So we just took turns of who had the rugby league. And every hour you got a five-minute break. So it was just a matter of... The brothers would walk around. You'd have to cover it up somehow, but make sure within that hour you read as much <laughs> of rugby league week as you could before you had to pass it on to the next kid. Remember they used to have Star Spot and one of the questions was last book read and all the players said rugby league week. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget Greg Alexander. I remember you know, working with Brandy now. It's like I remember this story on him in rugby league week and saying, you know, your 10 favourite possessions. And one of them was... Um, CDs, they're this new thing. CDs that they're better than tapes and all that. The sound is much clearer. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever own a CD. I had a friend actually, Trevor Marshall, so he, he actually believed that CDs were indestructible. <laughs> he kind of believed you could eat your dinner off them <laughs> and, and they'd still, they, they couldn't be damaged. It's like I once told Greg Pritchard that the more songs you put on your iPod, the heavier it gets. And he, he believed me. He did, he did believe he me. Did I, uh, speaking of which. The, the other one, can I just make, can I just make mention of the fact that. Um, 
you know, I used to love the covers of Rugby League Week that they do. I never forget the Fatty Vaughton Noel Cleal one for the State of Origin when they yeah. dress him up as the Confederate soldier yeah, and the yeah. Union soldier. Um, what uh, about uh, Kerry Bostead as the boss of Wingers? Uh, and it was like they did the song Born in Innisfail oh. to Born in the USA. Yeah, they changed right. their lines, yeah. Nah, but uh, unfortunately, you can't get players to give up their time to pose in fancy dress anymore. But, that's uh, ridiculous. They do it on Mad <laughs> Monday, but they yeah. won't do it. Imagine that. Imagine if someone walked up to a player and said, you know, you could be on the cover of Rugby League Week. Yeah, he's got dressed up as an Indian. Yeah, it was like absolutely like yeah. that's something you show your grandkids. Yeah. Um, anyway, the other one I remember is Harold and Arthur. Yeah, yeah. Remember yeah. the cartoon Harold and Arthur? And I'll never forget it. Um, Canberra had played the Roosters in the I think it was the qualifying final, mm. preliminary final in 1987. And Mal Meninga had just come back from his broken arm. Mm. And David, he'd run, literally run over the top of David Trewella mm. to score a try, which meant that they were going to the grand final that year against, um, against Manly. And the Harold and Arthur cartoon that week was, there was like an imprint of David Trewella <laughs> in the ground. And there's Harold standing over with the, with the microphone saying, uh, David, do you agree with the Raiders' decision to play Mel Meninga this week? <laughs> it's like, yes. Exactly. I actually, you know, like not that it would have made a difference, but I actually said to Shane Bugner at the start of last year because I was moving all my stuff from a bigger storage room over here at Moore Park to a smaller one, throwing out a heap of stuff. But I didn't throw out any rugby league weeks, of course. What I did was I got my doubles and put them on eBay. The ones that doubles on, <laughs> but but I said, why don't you actually go back and all these old features, like, um, you know, the you know. The big question, you know, the big Q and A's with the with a sort of Terry Fernley cartoon and yeah, then the question yeah. like do every now and then do revive one of those features, do a star spot, make the picture in black and white, and have a, have the cover from a different era each week, like yeah. the different masthead each week, and try to recapture some of the things. Because I thought Rugby League Week is about nostalgia. That's what it, say. yeah yeah it's about nostalgia, but not that it would have saved it or anything, and it would have been a very un. Sort of um, uh, a very risky thing for a magazine to do. I'm sure it would have been very hard to get it past the bosses to do it. But um, Rugby League Week to me became about nostalgia, and you know, I guess I just I'm not that I'm plugging my own book, but I just I've just written a book about that. You know, a book about the. Where stuff. can I buy that book? Uh, you can't buy. You can't <laughs> buy book no, but about about and um, we, the, we haven't told anyone that the title is no longer 52. It's now going to be called Touchstones. But it is. It's about all the stuff that you hold on to yeah. from your childhood and try to deconstruct why they matter. So so much to you, and should you really hold on to all of it? You do need to let go of some of it. You know what I mean. But unfortunately, we don't have a choice now with rugby league week. It is now we are letting it, go. Yeah, it is now just a touchstone. But um, but the thing about the thing about that is, um, having worked in a radio station where I know that if you said, "Oh, and what about that game in 1985?" the, the phones light up. Yeah. Nostalgia sells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for whatever reason, and I don't think it's just rugby league. Yeah, you know, yeah, if you yeah, said yeah. to someone, you know, these are great. How many tickets movies. are Guns and Roses selling? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know what? Someone told me the other day, and you, you would probably know this. Of all the great bands in the history of the world, hmm. you know the band that still garners the most revenue on an American tour in any given year, the Grateful Dead. Bingo. Mm-hmm. What name a big hit? Like, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, would yeah, know yeah, yeah. But but it's not that. It's because. They love their fans, yeah, yeah, and the fans love them for loving and them. And the and and they love and, and that era. Like I'm kind of um, very uh, sort of uh, teary eyed, misty eyed is the right word about about the eighties, about the Sunset Strip, and yep. you know um, um, spandex and hairspray. <laughs> but that, but but the number of people who feel that way about the Summer of Love, yeah, that was everybody. Yeah. So to that, that music evokes 
you know, their childhood yeah, in such yeah, a yeah. strong way, you know. And, and their youth and their, you know, that they're, they're, they're the baby boomers now and yeah. they're retired and they've got money to spend. And you know what? I'm going to go to four Grateful Dead concerts this yeah, summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So totally understand it. But yeah, so... You're not going to play a Grateful Dead song. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to request one. The first three that I ran through, I was thinking, oh, yeah, that one. And then you went, it's got to have guitars in it. I was like, oh, prerequisite. Um, but you, you'll appreciate this one. I, I was a great fan of... And a lot of it for the visual imagery, but also because of the journey that it takes you on. Um, November Rain. Mm-hmm. So um, is that your song? You want to yeah, play that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you got to play November Rain. Did you go and see GNR when they were in town? No, no, mate. I'm father of three young kids. Is then you flat out doing that? I noticed. Um, it obviously made an impact here because I was in JB Hi-Fi. Uh, last night and the, the greatest hits was like number six yeah. so people have gone out and uh, you could have bought it at a service station before they toured for four dollars <laughs> but uh, anyway November Rain do you want to is there anything you want to say about it uh, about about is it the video do oh, you like or um, the build up too isn't it mm. it's, it, it's the it's the the, the the way it builds it takes mm. you away and then it brings you back mm. um and for me, I, you know, that, that was a great time in in my mm. in my life. You know, you're young and you. Mm. Wasted on what is it? Youth is wasted on the young, but you know, free and all of those things that I guess now, like I say, I'm, I'm like the journo and like the player. You have got a family and you got a mortgage and you got to try and feed them. To quote uh, my favourite line from uh, that um, album or the two albums from Axel um, describing the music industry: the prejudice delusion that pumps the blood to the heart of the bees. <laughs>
Hello everybody, this is Ron Bumblefoot Thaw. You might know me from Guns N' Roses or not. And you're listening <laughs> You're listening to White Line Fever. Welcome back to the program, final part of our interview with Ryan O'Keefe from Airborne. Now we get to some of the questions that I've sort of always wondered, I've sort of been harboring for a while. One thing I've noticed is you kind of I, I want I just want to know if this is a coincidence or not. But you keep yourselves a little bit distant from the nostalgia circuit. I don't see you sort of touring with Faster Pussycat or going on the Monsters of Rock Cruise or any of that stuff. Is that deliberate or is that just the opportunities haven't arose? Um, uh, I think with us, we're sort of running our own course in in a way that um, we either do headlines, big festivals or um, big supports. Um, Mm. And with with dropping an album... um, yeah, you know, the headlines are going, headline shows are going really great. Mm. And uh, I think, you know, Australia so, as well is, um, I think it's almost sold out. So, yeah. Yeah, right. Man, and the other thing is, like, um, I, I listened to Never Too Loud on the album, and sadly, I'm at the point in middle age where it can be too loud for me because I went to so many gigs, I picked up a bit of tinnitus. <laughs> I, I just wonder, like, the, you know, reading these stories about um, having six kegs or whatever on the rider and, and all this sort of stuff, do you. Surely, at some point, you must worry that you know, if you keep drinking six kegs, Joel's not going to be take his shirt off anymore. You know, the the the, the rigors of the road are going to take their toll. Um, do, do you is it is it partly a bit of a um, an image thing? Do you do you have to rein it in just to do your job properly? Well, the funny thing is, I've got tinnitus as well, but um, <laughs> that just comes to the job. Um, well, not really. I mean, last night, you know, we we tied one on. Few whiskeys, few beers. Um, we won't drink that much before a show because it will never, will never affect the show. But we do get six, six liters of kegs um, if we play anywhere in Germany or Austria or, and stuff like that. And you know, it's not something we, we, we're trying to be we, we, we're proud of or anything like that. The thing is, if you're out on the road with a band and, and a crew that you're all really good mates with and been touring for now, some of these guys have been with us ten years. It's kind of hard not to have a good drink, you know. Mm. You know, you're sitting around at a festival and Judas Priest just is on stage and you don't really just go to your bunk and go to sleep. It's kind of <laughs> hard to do that. So, but, um, you know, I mean, it's part of touring, it's part of the, the, the life and, and, and we love it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just uh, wait till middle age, mate. You'll find it hard to keep the weight off. <laughs> um, the only thing I was going to ask you yeah. was... <laughs> mate, um, the only thing I was going to ask you about was going home to you, to Warrnambool and um, do you still consider yourself, you're an Australian-based band, right? You don't consider yourselves European-based, or, or you are based here, is that right? Kind of. We're sort of based in Melbourne, um, mm. but that, yeah, it's weird because we sort of spend more of our time out on the road, um, and uh, who knows where actually we're going to be in a couple of years, to be honest. Yeah. You mean that you might have to relocate, or you, you might have to get home somewhere else, or...? Well, I don't know. It's been talked about. I mean, it depends. The thing is, it, it doesn't. Living with uh, these days, it doesn't really matter where you live. Mm. Um, touring, there's touring sort of everywhere. Um, but we don't. You know, who knows? We, we could live in UK. We could live in North America. Who knows? Yeah, cool. Um, the only thing I want to ask you is whether, when you do go back to Warrnambool, do some of your old mates treat you differently? I mean, your life has been so different to theirs. I mean, do you encounter any awkwardness or jealousy or whatever, or do you find that you just slip back into the same old friendships and same old routines when, when you do get to go back? Yeah, no, it's the same old, same old friendships, same old routines. Um, yeah, everyone's just good, good mates, and 
you know, I like to go out and hit pubs and uh, just do the usual thing. Yeah, yeah, okay, mate. I'll ask you one deep and meaningful question. I'll leave you alone. Your experiences over the last um, sort of 10 years or, you know, going back to from from being, you know, in a band with your brother to seeing the whole world, if I was to ask you about the two or three things that's taught you the most about sort of human nature, the, the way of the world, the things that you wouldn't have learned otherwise, I know it's a deep, deep, deep and meaningful question, but could you come up with a couple for me? Okay, common sense is not that common. That's one. <laughs> yep. Um, I guess uh, people are very influenced, unfortunately. By the media by, or? By media, yep, yeah. yep. Where once you, once you sort of tour the globe a few times and start seeing things from a different perspective and see, you know, people can be manipulated quite easily. Mm. Um, you mean manipulated politically or commercially? Like manipulated to buy things or manipulated to do things or? Everything, everything, yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah. media, news, whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. anything like that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. If you, if you turn on your TV, I guarantee you're going to get hungry pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, um, what else? What is it? What do you reckon? People this? Are generally friendly. Sorry. People are generally friendly everywhere you go. Yep. People are generally friendly everywhere you go. Yep. Um, what's the fourth one? That I can really think of, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you? What have you learned about the worth of what you do? Like, what have you learned about? Obviously, you put smiles on people's faces. Is that your job? Do you think is that is that what what do you what do you what have you learned about that? Well, rock and roll ever since the Rolling Stones uh, is um, you know it's for a good time. I think it's only rock and roll, but I like it and mm. all that sort of stuff. It's uh, you know being being a rock and roll band, your job is to give people a good time. So mm. that's kind of what we're about. Just come to an airborne show and, and just just lose your mind and forget about the troubles and have a good time. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. I really appreciate it. One more song for us. Let's do Blackened by Metallica.
Legend! Hey everybody, this is David Austin from Megadeth. We are hanging here on White Line Feed. This is the first time this happened that the number of band members has multiplied between uh, minutes five and six. <laughs> we're, we're back uh, with the choir boys and we've got Paul and Guy joining. Keith, how are you guys? Hey, you doing, man? How are you? Good, good, good. Hello. What we were just talking about while we were walking up the stairs was um, about Monsters of Rock Cruise and I actually went on the one in 2013, saw you guys play... Uh, at an atoll on a bar that was shaped like a pirate ship and um you just sound diff- so different to all those other bands you know the, it's almost like the time is the only thing you've got in common with those uh, uh guys do you do you feel it's a blessing that you are included in that scene or do you think sometimes it might be a bit of a curse i mean uh, what are your thoughts yeah a bit of, a bit of both there's there's, a, there's good things about it like you know we get asked to go on those cruises to the caribbean so that's that's pretty positive <laughs> but you know there's a lot there's a lot more to our mu- to our music music you know nothing against all those type of those type of bands but you know like we do the acoustic thing we do country blues all sorts of stuff you know mm. but uh yeah it's just something we were lumped in with it because it because we came out at that that point in time, you know, the same time as all that, that was the big thing, you know, mm, so you, mm. you tend to get thrown in with it, you know. Is it, a, was it at the time, was it a good thing? Like at the time, I'd imagine it helped to be in all those big American magazines well, and all that sort of stuff. The thing is, you know, because, you know, there's nothing better than a scene. Yeah, You yeah. know, and it was a very good scene at the time, you know, and don't forget, a lot, a lot of fans, you know, they're not like purists, they're just, you know, you don't have to just like one type of thing. But it, you know, it was it was bracketed into that scene. Mm-hmm. So you know, I mean, it, you know, it did the band no harm. We definitely yeah. enjoyed. I mean, definitely enjoyed it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you get back to <laughs> you know, it. It's better than being in in the middle of the the folk scene or something in like <laughs> nineteen ninety. You know what I mean? <laughs> when you're in the you're in the middle of that all that stuff, you know, and how were the the girls dressed back then and all that kind of stuff? You know, being young lads, it was it was a yeah, of course the music was fun as well. <laughs> I was actually when I when I thought I was only going to be interviewing Keith, I was going to ask him whether the guys who are veterans of that era, the Sunset Strip scene, whether they're different from the rest of us. You know, they kind of like they, they've got war stories. You know, is it is it like that, or are they a little bit different than the rest of us? Oh, the guys who live for that. You know, it's just like anybody. There's some are, some aren't. You know, mm-hmm. some are still hanging. Desperately on the, the yeah mm. that that era, mm-hmm. you know, which is you know good in, in some ways because obviously they're still playing the music. Mm-hmm. You know, but you know, life's very different it was then. Yeah, yeah. So, the yeah. thing is with all that at, at that point, yeah, there was a lot of sort of you know music. There was you know fluff, if you know what I mean. But there's some of it. Yeah, there were there, there were a lot of good songs that came out of that era as well. Because mm-hmm. a lot of those songs were essentially pop songs, really. Mm-hmm. A lot of the big hits, you know, pe- you know, people like Poison, Cinderella, all those kind of bands. The, the hits that they had that were the massive hits. They were, they were basically pop songs, and they were you know, pretty good pop songs, you know. Mm-hmm. Pop songs with hair, basically. You know? <laughs> Um, I, I read that Homewreckers and Heartbreakers is kind of based, the title was based on a true story where the names have been changed to protect the guilty. Is Twisted Love based on anything true? Is, there, is the character in, in the song, is it a real person? Uh, can you help us? Uh, I wouldn't know. You'd have to. Uh, Spike wrote the um, majority of the lyrics on that one, so you'd have to, you'd have to <laughs> ask. I forgot you. to ask. <laughs> <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> 
So um, before we go to a song, because I, I didn't explain to you guys, but play a song every five minutes. What what is your attitude now towards like putting out songs individually, putting out EPs, and still sticking to the old sort of tried and true record, you know, long LP, you know, yeah. record CD. Well, do you have a philosophy, or do you just do what? whatever you agree on from one moment to the next or I think we prefer I mean I, I, well I, I prefer the old fashioned thing yeah. of doing a whole album rather mm-hmm. than putting stuff out, stuff out in dribs and drabs you know mm-hmm. and I think our fans like that as well you know you know yeah, yeah. Like, we, we haven't done any EP have we not really we did te- uh, Tears in Heaven sort of EP which was <laughs> sort of 10 years ago yeah and that was like a charity <laughs> thing yeah yeah. Uh, maybe we were ahead of our time then. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, we're putting a, we're putting one album out every year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and our management's very um, influential in that. You know, they the, the work is hard. Book the studio, book the flights. So off your pop lads and new album. Do you feel better out on tour when you've got something new to promote as opposed to? Would you feel bad like people like like some some like look at Guns and Roses? You know, that haven't released anything in all that time they're out playing stadiums yeah. like um do you feel do you feel better about yourselves as artists when you're promoting something new and you're out oh, touring right. yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. it's way better to have new material yeah but you, you don't think like i mean obviously some of the sorry i'm I should be talking to my own phone um some of the fans who show up they you know they're, they're here to see it's an old old problem but i mean they're here to see, hear songs that are really old aren't they but you don't let that into your heads when you no. when you step out in front of them you know no i mean we you know we're, we're all believers in you know you, you in kind of you know giving the fans what they want but at the same time you've got to keep yourself interested and keep moving hmm. moving forward you know but we still play all the you know we play the hits from you know a bit of what you fancy and and then we play, play a little bit from more or less every album we've done since. And uh, I think the fans appreciate that anyway, you know. I don't think they, they want to come and see us just play a bit of what you fancy and not play anything else. Mm-hmm. I think we've moved on beyond that. We've picked up a lot of fans since we got back together. It's almost a completely different fan base that we have now. You know? mm. Okay, time for another song, guys. Can you agree on... Are oh. we going to sing it for you, No, you don't have to sing it. No, 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 no. I like uh, Life's a Bitch.
Hey, this is Michael Starr. This is Lexi Fox. And you're listening to White Lion Fever. Okay, welcome back to the program. And for the uh, second week, uh, we have uh, uh, Brian Frank from Killer Bee on the line. Brian, um, I just wondered, um, looking at your history, there are two big breaks, um, one really long one, about 14 years uh, from, no- from 1998. And I read, and maybe some of the listeners as well, if they do a bit of research or they read, come across these stories, they read veiled references to things that went wrong at a business level that caused the band to, to go into hibernation for, for a long time. Can you shed any light on, on that? On, on, it wasn't a musical thing from what I've read. Can you shed any no, light on what happened? It, it was it was a, an industry thing. Unfortunately, you know, in this business, it's easy to be uh, carried down the wrong path. And we got tied up with some people in Switzerland that turned out to be uh, not quite as on board as we thought they were. And uh, it ended up that at the end of our tours in the in the 90s, we were doing a lot of great shows and a lot of cool things were happening, you know, being treated, all the star treatment, everything was feeling like, yeah, this is on its way now, we're ready to go, and everything was just on our, just on the tip of, uh, of, of breaking the ice. And then all of a sudden, it was like we were raided at a hotel by police and stuff, and they took our, the bus driver went home, left us with a van and our bus, our uh our bags on the side of the road and said, see you later, man, we're over this. Your, your, uh, your promoter owes 6 million Swiss francs. Wow. Said, what? Wow. How can that be? And the hotel's going, yeah, we need our money. I said, Hey man, we're a rock band, dude. Look at how I'm dressed. You think I'd book myself into a Hyatt Regency hotel looking like this? Give me a break, man. You know, it was, it was a total bizarre story. It, it, uh, it disillusioned, even though we had been in the business for a while, it disillusioned, it disillusioned us a lot. And, um, we ended up coming back to Sweden, you know, putting our homes on mortgages and stuff and paying off a lot of people that got burned by these promoters as best as we could. And then it just got, just got frustrating, so we took a break. So the first incarnation of the band finished on the side of a road where? where which, uh, it's, it's very evocative, in you know. The middle, <laughs> in the middle of Germany somewhere it was. I remember we were playing, uh, we were playing a small club the weekend, during the week before we were going to do one of these festivals that we were by. I don't even remember the name of it now. Mm. We, were in a, we were in a relatively large hotel there. And when we were checking out to go further, it turned out that the uh, police were waiting at the, uh, at the reception saying, you know, are you guys Killer B? Yes, we are. Are you involved with da-da-da-da-da uh, productions? We said, yes, we are. And they said, okay, uh, you have a bill here at the hotel for X uh, amount of uh, German marks and uh, we need you to pay that and this guy owes us 6 million Swiss francs all over the world and we're going like wow we had no idea he was just basically a con man the police mm-hmm. were cool they understood that we were victims as well so it basically it turned out that our production company split our uh, our tour bus split left us at the side I can't I don't remember the name of the town it was just the middle yeah. of Germany some small town yeah but we had some cool people you know some some uh, cool clubs in that they they helped us out one club that had us even though they had been um, burned for a lot of money they put a put a van up for us let us finish our tour we went home in October November and at, at the same time we were getting blow burned by these people i uh, got a hold of a lot of the clubs that had been that had been um, ripped off for no promotion no no things happening around the, the stuff that was supposed to be that they paid for and we booked a tour for january february of that of the next year and we went out and tried to pay back a lot of the club by doing free shows and that so we tried to keep our face up so i think that's what saved the band's name really yeah yeah and what happened to the promoter was he ever brought to justice or no idea no idea 
<clears throat> I really don't know. I remember being um, getting a, a, a fax message back when they had fax machines saying that we owed something like 25,000 Swiss francs to a hotel. Wow. And so we were on tour at that time. So I went to that hotel and I spoke to the manager and I said, hold on a minute, man. I mean, look at us. Mm. You really, this is what I was saying earlier, you really think we would book ourselves in here and you got a fax saying that you're going to cover everything. I know the guy's a jerk and he ripped you off, but you got to give us a break. And they did. They were very cool. And mm. we never had any anything come back on us later. But uh, there are a lot of people like that in the business. You have to be careful. You have and, to be really careful. And Brian, the, the gap between, I think, was it the last two records? That was also down to unusual circumstances. Is that right? Yeah, I, uh, myself, I had, a, I personally had an accident. I fell off a roof and I broke, uh, had nine fractures in my ribs and three fractures in my hips. So it kind of put our recording on hold. I toured in 95 with, uh, seven fractures in my ribs, Oof. you know, five broken ribs. And I still have five fractures now, but we'll be going on tour anyways through the UK in March. So it's just the way it is. You gotta live with it these days. Yeah, you, um, feel as fast. <laughs> what is it? What, so, so, do you have trouble breathing? What does it have an impact on your singing, or how how, how how does it affect you? You know, when you're on stage, you got an adrenaline flow, so nothing really affects your performance. It's only after. Yeah, you kind of go go to sleep, but no, it's okay now. I mean, you kind of learn to live with it. It's been four years now, so so it's okay. It's okay, but it it caused a a bit of a stagnation in the uh, in the recording process, which in some ways was good. Yeah. Okay. Um. Time for another song. Okay, then let's play a communication breakdown by Led Zeppelin.
white line fever. Going to land down under. Going to turn around the corner way down yonder. <laughs> but I'm not even going to try to rhyme anymore. <laughs> Michael Monroe here for White Line Fever. You get a chance, come and check us out live. We're going to rock your socks off and whatever. Rock like fuck. That's what I say. Okay, <laughs> come on down and rock on.